everyone. This is the Crime Cafe, your podcasting source of great crime, suspense, and thriller writing. I'm your host, Debbie Mack. Before I bring on my guest, I'll just remind you that the Crime Cafe has two ebooks for sale the nine book box set and the short story anthology. You can find the buy links for both on my website, debbiemack.com, under the Crime Cafe link. You can also get a free copy of either book if you become a Patreon supporter. You'll get that and much more if you support the podcast on Patreon, along with our eternal gratitude for doing so. I would also like to recommend Stitcher Premium if you're a fan of podcasts. If you like true crime or crime fiction, there are loads of podcasts out there for you. And with Stitcher Premium, you can listen to the exclusive archives from Criminology or bonus episodes from True Crime Garage. You can also listen ad-free to episodes of your favorite podcasts. I've subscribed, and for only $4.99 a month, it's nice to have ad-free entertainment. Just go to stitcher.com premium and use the promo code CRIMECAFE, that's one word, all caps, to try it out. Absolutely free for a month. Hi, everyone. Our guest today started his writing career as a police reporter, and apparently one of his stories became an important part of a big, lengthy murder trial. Um, he's also done advertising and marketing and worked as a copywriter for Knott's Berry Farm. That's a familiar name to me because I used to live in California. Um, not only has he written and published Three Mysteries and a book of flash crime fiction called Cops, Crooks, and Other Stories in 100 Words, but he's written business books, including Do-It-Yourself Direct Marketing, which was named Best Business Book of the Year by Library Journal and made the Book of the Month Club. Uh, his articles have appeared in major newspapers, including my own favorite, The Washington Post, and his latest novel is The Marijuana Murders. His name is Mark Bacon. Hi, Mark. Thanks again Hi, for Debbie. being so patient as to wait long enough for this interview. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Well, the last few months, I've just been hanging around like everybody else. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what we're all doing. We're all hanging around and Zooming. <laughs> yeah. A lot of Zooming going on. Um, let's see. I love your shirt, by the way. That's great. Oh, um, thanks. <laughs> very, very festive looking. Um, and uh, you have three books out so far in the Nostalgia City Mysteries. Is that correct? That's right. I'm working on number four. And that's for the series also? Correct. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, now, you said the ins inspiration for the series came from working at Knott's Berry Farm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, early in my career, I was a copywriter for Knott's Berry Farm. And um, I wrote ads and commercials, but occasionally I would get a chance to go out into the park and work on special events. And I got to meet some of the costumed employees who um, entertained the guests, people who wore those giant heads and people who were gunslingers and so on. And so I got to know a little bit about what um, it's like behind the scenes at a theme park. And I always thought that it might be an interesting place to um, hold a murder mystery. 
um, or to, to set a murder mystery. Because a theme park is great during the day, but at night, when everybody's gone, when the rides are stopped, everything is silent, and the only motion is the shadows of the trees, it can be a little scary. And I thought it'd make a great place to, to kill people. <laughs> That's cool. I like that. Um, let's see. You have never seen the show um, Playing God in Central Florida, something like that? No, doesn't doesn't ring a bell. It it revolves around a woman who works at the theme park. That's the only reason I asked. Oh, okay. Well, there's a lot Actually, of those in Florida. Yeah, um, it, it's it's quite an interesting show. Uh, it was on Netflix, I think. Um, anyway, um, hopefully it'll come back and more will. I don't know if they um, canceled it or not, but anyway, be that as after may. as I was working. I worked at the theme park years ago, and then when I finally got down to uh, writing murder mysteries, I wanted to do a theme park, but what kind of theme park should I use? Um, the Disney has done so many different kinds, different variations. I didn't want to copy any of that. I wasn't interested in the, um, the fast roller coaster kind of theme parks. and. I live in Reno, Nevada, and the biggest event every year here is called Hot August Nights, and it's a celebration of rock and roll and old cars. And one day I'm driving down the street, and I'm listening to rock and roll on the radio, and sitting next to me at a traffic light is like a 72 Mustang, and it just all of a sudden occurred to me, why don't I do a theme park that is a recreation of a town from the 1970s? And so that's what it is. That's what Nostalgia City is. It's like taking a trip back in time. Very interesting. Um, now, I'm trying to remember, were uh, modern conveniences in this uh, theme park? Like, did they have Wi-Fi and things like that? I can't remember now. Oh, in Nostalgia City? Yeah. Well, no, because they tried to keep it as accurate to the 70s as possible. Um, now, guess coming in obviously have cell phones with them, but they're discouraged from using them. And all park employees, cell phones, uh, pagers, computers, anything that didn't exist in the 70s is verboten. But an interesting experience that would be for most millennials, I think. <laughs> right. Um, now, as I understand it, each of your books was based on real life events. Can you talk about each of those events and how they sure, affected the book? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, I don't know how I got on to the idea of, of basing it on real events, but uh, I think it adds to the authenticity, the realism of a story. If there's some um, kernel of, of um, something from the news in it, and I've done that with all the books. Um, the, the, the second book I did is called Desert Kill Switch, and it is based on um, something that's really amazing that I sort of stumbled on once reading a newspaper article, and I had a hard time believing that it was true. I did some more research and I found out it was true. And the situation is that a number of car dealers in the country, when they finance a used car or a new car, particularly for people who are low income and they have to uh, pay a high interest rate, 
the dealers install a GPS tracking device and a kill switch on the engine so that if they miss a payment, sometimes by as few as a few days, depending on the dealer, they flip the switch and the car is dead. You're not going anywhere until you make your payment. And if you don't make your payment, the dealer knows where you are because of the GPS and he just comes down and takes your car. It, it um, uh, bypasses the old repo man. Don't even yeah. need the repo man. Know where the car is. And this is real. Now, certainly not all dealers do this. It's a, a percentage of them. Um, but I did a lot of research on it. And it is, in fact, what's going on in the industry. Um, there have been some lawsuits on it. Um, a woman in Las Vegas claimed that the dealer threw the switch when she was on the freeway and she narrowly avoided an accident. Um, so I, I started reading all this and I thought, wow, is this a great idea to work into a murder mystery? And so I did. And that's where the name Desert Kill Switch came from. That's um, they're fantastic. My, my third book, the, the most latest one is called The Marijuana Murders. And that is based in large part on two uh, ballot campaigns that were conducted in Arizona um, to legalize marijuana. And there were two camps. One was the corporate camp that wanted to uh, essentially set up corporate stores all over the state and sell marijuana in a very regimented way. The other camp wanted to make it more like uh, mom and pop stores, like a mom and pop liquor store only a mom and pop pot store. Um, and so they both had propositions on the ballot and they were both competing with each other. And there was a good bit of animosity between the two camps. The, the one camp was more the sort of laid back, uh, people called them the stoner uh, proposition. And uh, then there was the corporate one that was all interested in the bottom line. And that sounded ready-made to me to, mm -hmm. for a murder mystery. And so I did, and I, I drew a lot of, of uh, information that I put in the book directly from what the campaigns were saying about each other. Um, strangely enough, neither campaign uh, was successful hmm. and because they were um, going Working across purposes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course, I, I built in some murders um, that didn't really happen, um, but uh, that's, that's really what it was all about. And I also went back a little bit into the history of, of um, marijuana prohibition and how it got started. Um, and I talked about, well, I had one of my protagonists talk about um, the Federal Bureau of, of Narcotics or drugs, I should say, back in the 1930s. They put out these movies that scared people about <laughs> marijuana. They told everybody that, um, that uh, marijuana made white women want to have sex with black men. Yes. Um, it was a racial thing. It was, it was really a horrible mess. Um, and I, I just barely touch on that. The main focus is, is the, the campaign that actually happened in Arizona. And it's in Arizona because that's where my theme park is. Um, Nostalgia City is located uh, somewhere just north of Phoenix. Seems like a good location for it somehow. Um, it is for several reasons. One, um, I wanted a place where you'd have a lot of open, inexpensive land because Nostalgia City is like the most elaborate theme park in the country. 
and it would have to have some place that was open and you could build it. Um, number two, decent weather year round. And number three, I placed it near um, a portion, a recreated portion of Route 66 that traveled all the way across Northern Arizona. So it tied into the theme. That's great. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, let's see, uh, your time as a, a reporter on the police beat, does that uh, work its way into your, your writing as well? It does. In terms of your knowledge from that? It does. Um, in, in several different ways. Uh, one is um, getting to know policemen and how they think. Um, one is the routine of police work. Um, I, look, I went to the police department every single day and went through the files and talked to the cops and, and a lot of it just becomes so routine um, and um, sort of soul numbing in a way, depending on the, the individual, of course, but so much of it is just routine work that um, doesn't yield anything. Um, a lot of time spent. And so I built that into my main character, one of my two main characters. I have two protagonists. One is Lyle Deming, who is an ex-cop. The other one is Kate Sorensen, who is the public relations manager of the theme park. And they eventually get together in the first book because a lot of things happen that draw them both into it. Right, yeah. Now, why did you decide to make him an ex-cop rather than a cop? Um, because he got fed up with police work um, and he's um, a wounded individual, um, stressed out completely. Um, he has general anxiety disorder um, for which he uh, takes medication and sometimes drinks, um, sometimes at the same time, which is not a good idea. <laughs> Um, and I made him an ex-cop because he escaped to Nostalgia City and became a cab driver, thinking that this would be about as far removed from doing murders um, as you could get, driving a cab in a theme park. He's driving a cab. You don't think of cabs being in theme parks, but Nostalgia City is multiple square miles. And so they really have, it's really a recreation of a whole town. So they have cabs and they have buses and, and various forms of transportation. So Lyle got the cab to escape as much as possible and just to be laid back. Um, unfortunately, that's not exactly how it worked out for him. I love the fact that he's escaped to a place that takes him back in time, essentially. <laughs> right. There's a kind of feeling, you know, of escaping back to the past in a way. That, that's exactly it, and the, the music from the past, and and the food, and the cars, and everything about that time, is is an escape. Exactly. Yeah. And he has um, to hide his cell phone. <laughs> he hides his cell phone. Because he can't. He's not allowed to use it in the park. Exactly, but he he does use it. I assume um, secretly when he's outside the park and sometimes secretly if he has to, but for the most part, he gets along without it. And from a mystery writer standpoint, that's kind of handy because um, so much of crime fiction these days is based on the ultra tech 
methods of, of investigation and, and catching criminals. And, and I kind of give Lyle a little more of the old fashioned uh, shoe leather and interviewing people rather than um, checking DNAs and looking at uh, CCTV. I'm with you on that. I, I love the old, the old fashioned, you know, people going out and actually confronting other people, actually talking to them face to face, that sort of thing. And I think right. um, technology can fall down in many ways. So that potential is there even today. <laughs> but um, I like that the, um, the female public relations person was also a college basketball star. What prompted you to make her the college basketball star? What prompted me to make her that? Yeah, what put, why um, did you put that in her backstory? Well, uh, I got the inspiration from my younger daughter, who was a college basketball star. Cool. And um, I got to know uh, all the girls on her team um, and saw the games and saw the pressure they were under. She was a Division I point guard. Um, she's not tall like Kate Sorensen. She's only 5'6", but she was an incredible shooter. And she ran the team as point guard. And it was very high-pressure situation. Um, when they're in tournaments and they're down by one point and she has the ball. and <clears throat> So I gave Kate that background so that she can deal with stress in a whole different way than Lyle deals with stress. He deals with it by sort of freaking out. Um, although he exercises, he never has gotten around to meditating, which Kate has told him he should do. But Kate deals with stress um, that she learned how to on the basketball court and that she turned the stress into uh, positive energy that she needed to deal with the other team, deal with scoring, deal with the refs. So she uses that in a lot of the stressful situations in the novels where she can kind of be the calming influence. Mm -hmm. um, and I made her six feet three because I thought it would be a cool idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's cool. Um... Does any kind of romantic tension develop between them, or do they remain just friends? Uh, slowly. 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 I, 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 the first book was they just met and just kind of exploring relationships. The second book, a little bit closer. The third book, and now I'm actually in the fourth book, they don't get to see much of each other because he's in Florida and she's in Arizona, but um, it is developing, yes. Hmm, that's very interesting. Because I, I detected I, I don't want just, it to go yeah, too fast. You don't want to go too fast, exactly. Keep that uh, romantic tension in there. Um, let's see, tell us about the one you're working on now. It involves industrial espionage. It does. Um, I don't know if I'm like, a lot of authors, but I don't like to talk too much about work in progress. That's um, fine. Part of the reason that I'm a writer is I get things in my head and I get rid of them by sitting at the computer and writing it all down. But I will tell you a little bit about my research for this book. Um, again, it's based on some real, real news events, real facts. Um, the Chinese government uh, has for many years been stealing our secrets. And the, if you read the FBI files, and they're voluminous, you find out how many things have been stolen 
and what their techniques are. And their techniques are really kind of uh, intriguing. Um, they would like to, to steal things, of course, um, and sometimes pay for them and risk getting arrested. And they have been. Um, but they have a, a huge infrastructure, the People's Republic of China does, to absorb uh, American technology um, without stealing it by essentially just asking for it. Um, a couple of things. One, there are over 300,000 uh, Chinese students in the United States right now, uh, most of them in technological fields, getting masters and doctorates, and they learn all this information and they go home and they use it. Um, one of the other ways they use is they set up symposiums and conferences and all types of meetings in China. They invite American professors and scientists who are in leading edge technology to come over and they give them awards and they talk to them about um, what great work they're doing. And the professors and the scientists are so proud of what they're doing, they give talks on it. And they mm -hmm. explain everything that their their technology is, and um, that's exactly what what the Chinese would like to do. Um, so that's that's part of part of this book. Um, it's dealing with um, people stealing uh, theme park secrets, mm -hmm. and China is the largest theme park market in the world, more so than the United States. There are literally hundreds of theme parks in China, some very small, some gigantic. Um, and a lot of theme park um, ride manufacturers sell to the United States. They also sell to China. They also sell around the world, Europe, Asia, Africa, everywhere. Um, it's a huge market. It's billions and billions of dollars. So every theme park wants to have the latest technology. So when you take a ride, it really just takes you away from it all. It just is um, uh, much more so than seeing a, a fantastic movie. It's just a complete experience. And the technology is advancing rapidly with things like um, extended reality, artificial intelligence. And so that's, that's what the book's all about. That sounds mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's see. Oh, I also, I wanted to say I love the concept of the 100-word story. How oh. long did it take you to put that book together? Did you just write them individually and then just put them all together, or did you do it deliberately? It, it started with a, a friend of mine who was teaching a writing class, and he told me that he had this exercise for students that they had to write a complete story in only 100 words. Not 99 words, not 101 words, but 100 words. Huh. So I thought, whoa, okay, I'll give it a try. So I just played around with it. And I had no idea there was actually a flash fiction genre at the time. I just thought this was kind of a fun thing to do. Um, so I started doing it. And I wrote a few that I liked. And um, then I started doing more. And I submitted some to some literary magazines that got published. I got more interested in it. And um, finally, I realized I had enough to put them in a book. So I did. That's fantastic. Um, it took me about a day each story. Um, it seems like a lot of time for just 100 words. Um, Not but, really. 
<laughs> for a good story? My, my, my stories usually are like 250 words, and then it's a matter of getting them down. And they're all exactly 100 words. Um, and most of them are crime stories. Uh, and they have a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. They have a protagonist. They have a challenge. I try to pack that all in 100 words. And it's, it's a huge challenge, and I really love that. Um, and I did this before I started doing the mystery novels. Well, sort of. I had done some practice novels before. But um, I learned a lot doing flash fiction. I learned how to say a lot in a few words. I learned how to say things that um, make the reader think without telling them something right out. Um, and I think it's a great discipline. Um, and, it, and it's a whole genre. There are books, there are many, many, many publications. Um, and many people have their own definition of what flash fiction is too. Hemingway wrote flash fiction. Um, uh, Margaret um, Atwater, At Atwood, Atwood, Margaret Atwood writes mm -hmm. flash fiction. Um, and there's 100-word flash fiction. There's 200-word flash fiction. There's 500-word flash fiction. And um, one of the shortest flash fictions is attributed to Hemingway. It's a six-word one. Do you know baby, that? Baby shoes, yeah. Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's... Now I have to read this book. <laughs> I'm really intrigued. I want to see this. Um, now I want to try to take it up. <laughs> See if it's I can do it myself. Fun, yeah, what, what an interesting challenge. Um, the, way I did challenge. It is, the way I did it is every morning I take my dog for a walk. Usually takes about an hour. And by the time I got home, I had an idea for a story. So I sat down and worked on it. That's fantastic. I love it. Um, what writers are you most inspired by? Who most inspires your and informs your writing? I knew you were going to ask me that. Um, well, I am equally a fan of contemporary mystery crime writers and possibly more a fan of the classics, the classic noir writers. Um, people like Cornell Woolrich, Dorothy V. Hughes, um, um, Ross MacDonald is one of my favorites. I love um, him. Obviously, Dashiell Hammett and mm -hmm. uh, Raymond Chandler, um, and there's a bunch of others from that period. I've read a lot of, of that period. I, I kind of go back and forth between contemporary stuff and, and the, the classic period. Um, and I find that a little bit of that classic stuff has gotten into my writing unintentionally. I'm in a critique group. And we exchange chapters and critique each other. And one of the critique group members said, this sounds just like an old fashioned gumshoe story. And I didn't intend to do it that way. So now I have to figure out exactly what to do with it. Hmm. Well, I don't think it sounds so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I were gonna read it, I think I would enjoy it, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that kind of style. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about before we finish up? Let's see. Um, oh, did you want to talk about Detour? Oh, sure. Yeah. My gosh, Detour. 
the movie that I couldn't stand the first time I saw it, but came to appreciate better the next time I saw it. <laughs> uh, basically, uh, the guy just strikes me as a loser who is sort of sleepwalking through life and things happen. He doesn't think about the results of his actions at all and kind of drifts from one situation to the next until he finds, finally ends up screwed. That's kind of the way it seemed to me. How about you? Very depressing, very dark. Yes. Um, and this is now 1945, 46. 40, yeah, it could have been right about in there, yeah, 45, 46, I think. And uh, exceptionally low budget. Oh, yeah. Um, to the point that they had a, a scene that was supposed to be in New York City, but it was filmed in Hollywood with a, with a fog machine. Yeah. Um, and a very tight it's Pretty uh, obvious, camera, too. So you couldn't see where they were. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, Clever, and, though. And no name actors at all in the movie. Mm -hmm. um, it's become a cult film for reasons that sort of escape me. Um, <laughs> uh, it's about a guy who, who makes every possible decision wrong. Yes. Um, you and I were talking about this before we got started here. And one of the other crazy things about it is the, the last scene with the telephone. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, I, I won't spoil it to anybody that hasn't seen the movie, but <laughs> it's an unusual way of killing someone. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like, oh, well, oh my gosh. <laughs> However, that's not good. <laughs> I must say, though, in the middle of that movie, there's a twist that caught me completely by surprise because the movie was kind of ho hum up until that time. And all of a sudden, wow, what a great idea! Right in the middle. Was it and, the thing with uh, the father? The hitchhiker. The hitchhiker. Because she knew who he was. Just just the hitchhiker herself. Okay. Well, the fact that he picked up somebody who was tied into the whole, mm -hmm. to the the whole, whole murder in that. Yeah. Right. I thought that was really a genius twist. And it went downhill from there. Yes, it certainly did. <laughs> Things went downhill fast from there. I think her name was, the actress's name was Anne Savage. Is that correct? Right, yes. And the Savage the was such a, was an appropriate Tommy. name for that character. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For a person yeah. who would play that character. Yeah. My yeah. God, yeah, Tom Neal. Yeah, he had a sad life. Um, anyway, <laughs> wow, yeah. Detour, that's quite a movie. But um, it, anyway. It's available on YouTube for free, I think. Yes, it is. It's a public domain movie for anybody who's interested. Yeah. yeah. So, well, all I can say is thanks for being on today, Mark, and thanks um, for, having me, Debbie. for talking movies as well as books, because I love both. <laughs> yeah. And to everyone who's listening, you can get a copy of the transcript of this interview when I put it on my blog, at least I hope so, because transcripts cost money, and I'm short on money all the time. <laughs> uh, so anyway, we'll see. Um, in any case, in two weeks, our next guest will be Andrew Allen. And until then, I hope you have a great two weeks and happy reading.